Man, I'm grateful for that time of worship today. And like I mentioned earlier, we're in this series called Kingdom Values. And we really began last week just kind of as an introduction. And we talked about, hey, what, what's the big idea for this series? We said that living in the kingdom means giving towards the things that matter. And we looked at those two words, kingdom and values, because when you say the kingdom of God, you know, you wonder, well, what is, what is the kingdom? What does, that, what does that even mean? And we said that that's God's eternal spiritual ruling authority over everything, that God is currently shepherding all things in the world, good and bad, the things that uh, we love, the ways that we feel when things are great and when things are not so great. He's shepherding all of that towards his eternal purposes. And so since he's the king and since he's the ruler and since it's eternal, the kingdom of God is here. It's here right now. It's not something we just look forward to kind of out in the future. It's here. So since God is ruling, ruling in our hearts and lives, if you call yourself a Christian or a believer right now, what are the things then that we should, that we should value? So we're looking at that in light of the fact that God is our King. What, uh, what are those values? What are those things that are important uh, to him and therefore that are important to us? And so today, as we look at Luke chapter 12, um, before we jump into the text, I just want to talk a little bit about the context because it's kind of an unusual moment in the life and ministry uh, of Jesus. You know that in our label series this past summer, we looked at the gospel of Luke and we knew we were talking about this passage in Luke 12 uh, this fall. So it's one of them that we did not, uh, did we not address maybe this summer. But in Luke 12, Jesus is teaching publicly. He's teaching about heavy stuff. He's talking about death and eternity and authority, those kinds of things. And in the middle of this public teaching, this conversation, um, there's a man in the crowd and the man yells out at Jesus, hey, Jesus, will you tell my brother to give me some inheritance money? And I'm sure everybody in the crowd was like, what? I mean, it was so out of, out of context. And it just made me think as I was studying this week, I mean, everybody knows this guy, right? One of my favorite comedians talks about the, when you go to a party, uh, the guy that does all of the talking and he's the, he calls him the me monster. It's uh, me, myself and I, more of me, more of me, right? Whenever they, and, and you know, you know this person, like it doesn't matter um, how great of an experience you had, they had a greater experience. It doesn't matter how terrible of an experience you've had. They've had one that's more terrible. It's the one upper, right? And you just seem like you can't get a word in edgewise. Somebody that's unusually focused, right, on me, myself, and I. And it seems like that's who, that's who this guy is. So Jesus is gonna not just address him, but he's gonna address that reality that in all of us, really, that can become unusually focused, on ourselves, and in particular, um, our own financial reality. I mean, here's the son of God, right? He's teaching these, uh, these folks who are listening and in the middle of heavy, heavy stuff, he's like, I know we're talking about all this heavy stuff, but what about me? What about my financial? What about my financial life? And that selfishness, uh, that greed rears its ugly head in all of our lives. I would dare say uh, right now that if I asked uh, you, what has the stock market done in the last 30 days? A lot of you could give me a detailed answer. And that's not, that's not wrong that you could give, but if I were to say to you, what has been God's activity in your life in the last 30 days? What are the unusual ways that you sense God speaking to you? I just wonder if we could all offer just as clear of an answer as we could about 
about our financial reality. So when this guy yells out this, this question, here's how Jesus answers him. And he's gonna answer him in a parable, one that's probably familiar to um, a lot of you. And just by way of reminder, a parable is where Jesus tells a story with a singular point typically offered um, right at the end of the parable. So he starts in uh, verse 15 of chapter 12. And he, he, Jesus said to them, them being the crowd, take care. Be on guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist um, in the abundance of possessions. Now, that's an amazing thought and I'm not gonna dress it up with a point. I'm just gonna restate what Jesus says. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Now, the reason I think that's unusual because it flies in the face of our cultural moment right now, because everything that we see, everything that is marketed to us is that life does consist in the abundance of possessions. And we have to fight this tendency, this feel that we get all the time that life is about um, accumulation. And we are distracted towards this accumulation, this accumulative kind of mindset. So that's Jesus's intro to the parable. And here's how it begins. We'll read the first part of it in verses 16 through 19. And he, he, Jesus, told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store my grain uh, and my goods. So Jesus tells a parable about a wealthy guy and barns. This guy uh, is the Gordon Gecko of the Bible. If you remember him from the movie uh, Wall Street years ago, what did he say? The famous quote, greed is good. And I think what we're going to see in the text and in the parable is that maybe greed is a good motivator, but it's a terrible, it's a terrible boss. Jesus says this guy has barns. And you know, um, I, I talk about a lot that I grew up in Southern Ohio and I know I kid about it every now and then, but man, there's so many things that I love. And it's just a different cultural experience there. A few years ago, uh, somebody recommended the book Hillbilly Elegy uh, to me. And uh, it was a great read for me uh, just because of my ancestry. Now there's some, there's some coarse language and things like that in the book. If you choose to go out and read it, I'm not necessarily recommending that. I haven't seen the movie that's related to the book necessarily, but what I learned uh, really was beneficial to me. The author writes about, he's from Jackson County, uh, Kentucky, which you think about like uh, Western Kentucky, or excuse me, Western West Virginia, Eastern Kentucky, Southern Ohio, um, that little circle that comes together um, right there. One of the things that he mentions um, in the book, uh, really not just from a geography perspective, but more from an ancestry perspective, is that the people who settled there were Scots-Irish people. Um, now that part I kind, of, I kind of knew, but he went into the development of just kind of the mentality, the mindset. Um, so the reason that they settled there is because of the hilly terrain, the foothills, the Appalachian um, mountains that are down there. And they settle there because, because that's where they feel the most at home, a very clannish um, people. Um, obviously, if you think about who's the greatest hero in you know, Scottish culture, at least one of those is William Wallace, right? So uh, there's a, a preference towards the name William. So you've got a bunch of people living down in one, in one 
area. It's very hilly terrain. Um, a lot of them are named uh, William, which uh, Americans eventually shorted, shortened to Bill. So you've got hilly people named Bill living in the same spot, thus the colloquial term hillbilly. So I'm gonna show you a picture of my hillbilly heritage. And uh, as I show it to you, you'll see that's my grandmother and grandfather who are on the top left. They're pictured here with 10 of their 11 children. That's my dad who's there on the bottom left. And just looking at this picture um, for me this week, this is circa, I think, 1957 or 1958. Um, I love the people in this picture so much. Imperfect uh, people, but they were gritty, tough, family first um, kinds of people. And where I grew up, when you talked about people, when you thought about people, when, um, as we all do as human beings, when you think about the status of people, so many times um, you didn't think about their, their home. Uh, certainly you didn't think about their cars or their vehicle, much like we tend to think about today. You thought about, in a lot of ways, you thought about their barns. Anybody who built a new barn, people who had large barns, um, those were people who were doing, who were doing well financially. Um, and, and I would dare say that if you grew up in Ohio, West Virginia, Kentucky, maybe in the surrounding states, even further out into the Midwest, somewhere in your ancestry, there is a family barn that you're tied to. I'll show you a couple of pictures from just family barn, just by way of reminder, you drive through the rural areas uh, of Ohio and these are the kinds of barns that you see. The last one is the one that my mom and dad saved up 30 years um, during their careers to uh, eventually buy uh, a little plot of ground there that had a barn and a farm um, on it. There's, in our ancestry, we're tired, tied to kind of an agrarian agricultural mindset and background. And so the reason I say all that is to say the guy in Jesus's story he could have grown up in Southern Ohio because he was very concerned about his barns. He had done very, very well for himself, but the crops that he was bringing in were so much that he thought, I'm gonna build even more barns, even bigger barns, so I can even have a greater storehouse. Now, the problem with this guy is not his industrious nature. Uh, some of you are very gifted in business. Um, everything you, you kind of uh, touch, you, know, you think strategically and you can develop resources through uh, with business acumen. There's nothing wrong with that. But in this guy's case, it's not that he wanted to build larger barns to give more. Rather, he wanted to build larger barns to gain more. And the disease in his soul, much like us and the way that we see things today, we just judge them differently. For us, it's not, it's not barns. It's the emblem on your car, right? It's the neighborhood where your house sits. It's the, um, the titles that little, the, 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 um, the dots that come after your name that give you the, the whatever it is, your title and your profession. For this, for this guy, he didn't realize that his possessions were actually possessing him instead of him leveraging his possessions. 
it was, it's a very different mindset and a very different mentality. In his mind, what he thought was, I just don't have, and this is the key word to me in the text uh, for the passage, if I could think about it thematically, his idea was, I don't have enough. So he said, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna, I'm gonna extend my influence, but I'm gonna extend my influence for my sake. Here's how he summarizes that in verse 19. He says, and I will say to my soul, after building all these barns, after accumulating all these resources, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. The interesting thing for you and me is that um, we think there's enough money out there to give us security. And for a lot of us, that's a struggle, right? That money is tied to security. There's a certain amount out there. There's a certain accumulation factor out there. I have found that um, to not be true. Um, I know some people who have a lot of resources, but they don't have that security, right, that they're looking for, that sometimes our hearts are so tied to. There's a great example of this in 1 Kings uh, chapter 17 in the Old Testament. There's a widow that lives in Zarephath with her young son, her son who's um, certainly too young to work um, in the text. And there's a drought in Zarephath and it's been there now for a couple of, a couple of years. And um, she doesn't have any resources left. There's no there's no water resources left. She's down to her last uh, oil, her last flour. She's down to the last, I'm sure, drinks of water that she has. And so she goes out to gather sticks for a fire. And really her heart, her mentality is that she's gonna make one last meal for she and her son. And she thinks this is it uh, before, she's going, before she's gonna perish. In gathering up sticks to make that fire, she runs into the Hebrew prophet, um, Elijah. And in their conversation back and forth about what she is doing, um, Elijah makes a statement to her. He says, uh, he says, would you bring me a little water in a jar so that, uh, that I may have a drink? Now, this is no small request, right? In the, middle, um, in the middle of a drought for someone to ask you for water, no small request. But as she is going to get it, um, Elijah adds, he says, and bring me a piece of bread. And you're like, okay, dude, you're the me monster, right? In the middle of something that's heavy and terrible and difficult. I mean, she is in a sense planning out the funeral for she and her son. You're asking her not only for bread, not, or not only for water, you're asking her to add on to bread. And I was just reminded as I was reading the text that there are critical moments in all of our journeys where God asks us to do difficult things by faith. And so here's what, uh, here's what I have. Here's her, her response. She says, as surely as the Lord, your God lives. Now notice she says your God, not our God, not my God. Um, but she says to Elijah, your God. Now she lived in Zarephath. They, they were not Hebrews. They didn't worship Yahweh. Rather they worshiped uh, Baal uh, there. So she's got a different idol. So she says, as surely as the Lord, your God uh, lives. I don't have any bread. I have only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. And I'm gathering sticks to take home for a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it 
and die. Elijah said to the woman, do not be afraid. Go home and do as you have said, but, and here's key word in the text, but first make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me. Then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, the jar of flour will not be used up and the jug of oil will not run dry until the day that the Lord gives rain um, upon the land. Now I want you to just for a second, put yourself um, in, the, uh, in the widow's place. So you're going out to gather sticks to make the last, right? To make the last meal for you and your son. You run into this prophet that you've never met before. And he suggests that his God will provide for you as long as in the reality, in the context of saying, hey, you, um, you give to me, you give to the prophet of God first. Now it seems very selfish on um, Elijah's part, but there's a principle that Elijah is teaching. And the principle is when God is first, we always have enough. And what she is gonna learn, and I think what you and I learn in relationship to our resources is in the context of generosity, when we place God first, our possessions don't possess us. Instead, we look at our possessions as resources and we say back to God, the God, what I have, when we put you first, when you put God first, God is always enough. He supplies for us according, not to our ability, our capability, but according to his capability, his ability, according to his riches for us in, in Christ Jesus. And so what Elijah, uh, God through Elijah is saying to her is similar to what God through Elijah is saying to us is that you've got a life and we all look at our lives differently in regards to our resources. And maybe you look at your life like Elijah maybe was looking in this narrative, like a jar. And you've got a certain amount in the jar. And what you think is, I need to go from this amount to this amount. In the, like, I need to increase, like, I need bigger barns, right? I need more stuff. But Elijah was, in, was encouraging her. And eventually at the end of the narrative, this is exactly what she experienced. Day in, day out, day after day, after day, week after week, after week, month after month, after month. There was always, always enough in the jar. And God provided for Elijah and he provided for the widow and he provided for her son on a daily basis. And so I wonder how you and I then look at our lives because God wants to give us a full jar kind of life. But full jar kind of living doesn't mean that you and I accumulate enough stuff that we can sit back and say, okay, so relax for you have enough goods. You have ample goods, right? For the, what God knows our souls need more than anything is to know that he is enough. Not that your ability or my ability to gain and accumulate resources, that that's the thing then for us that becomes enough. And so um, you would say maybe back to me, okay, Dean, so you're saying to me, I need to be, um, I need to be generous. I need to give God first. Well, what, what's, what's the church, what's LifePoint gonna do with, with these resources that, that I give. Um, 
I would encourage you, whenever you have the opportunity to go to our website, lifepointohio.com, click on the give button. And when you scroll down on that page, there's a box, a button there that says, uh, see what you're giving supports. And you can go and you can look at our uh, annual report from last year, from 2021. And you can look at all of the things that we are blessed to be partnered with and support Globally, our church supports um, over 200 children who are living in vulnerable situations um, in Uganda. Um, we are blessed to be partnered in one of the poorer countries um, in, on all the African con continent in Malawi, planting churches, um, helping um, raise um, people's ability there in the, uh, in the trade school um, by providing carpentry and woodworking and fabric uh, making uh, for peace to, people to gain life skills, to be part of church plants, to be part of blessing their community in the context um, of the gospel. And in other countries, places I've already, I already mentioned earlier in the service today, in, in India, um, in, uh, in Cuba, um, in Argentina, now that we're places we're able to be partnered, but not just globally, but even here, even here locally. We're blessed to be partnered. Um, you'll see there on the website with Turning Point of Delaware County, where people can be sheltered from abusive situations. They can go there and they can receive temporary um, shelter. We're blessed to be partnered with the Stowe Center who um, helps people with food insecurity in the city uh, of Columbus by providing over 150,000 hot meals a year in addition to crisis pregnancy um, resources and other resources, certainly free dental care uh, that they offer uh, to the people um, of our city. We're blessed to be partnered with ministries, some of our life groups with ministries like Out of Darkness that are pushing back against sex trafficking um, in our city as well. Locally and globally, you are helping us, you are blessing us as we bless others. But then as we look forward to the next year, to 2023, I'm excited to share with you just a part uh, today, the first part, I'm sure we'll share more over the next couple of weeks, but just a part of our vision um, for, the coming, uh, for the coming year. Um, you know, one of the realities um, that we, um, our network of churches, um, that we plant churches together. And so over the last decade, um, we have been, I think we've been blessed just as much as we've blessed um, these three great cities in Ohio, Cincinnati, Columbus, and Cleveland. Um, we've been partnered up with other churches to plant over 150 churches in the last 10 years in Cincinnati, Columbus, uh, and Cleveland. And so we've done what I feel like um, is, um, is, man, extending our hearts and grace in every way that we can to help plant churches in our metropolitan areas. There's been a lot of ways. Um, the rural areas of our state, um, they need attention. To my knowledge, we are part of the largest uh, gospel-centered network of churches um, in Ohio, about 600 plus uh, churches in our state. But in the area where I grew up, down in the southeastern part of the state, I can tell you just in our network of churches alone, there are 16 churches right now that are currently pastorless. Not uh, very many people are moving that direction. And so churches are struggling. Churches that have history and history of years of gospel ministry there, they're struggling to find pastors, to find leadership. And they're really just um, stringing it together on a week by week 
by week basis. These places that have been lighthouses for the gospel, lighthouses of hope and help and healing over the years find themselves struggling. And so this year, one of the things that we want to do is we wanna take a step forward in the development of this that you're watching today. This, our online platform that can be an extension to help churches when they don't have a leader, when they don't have pastors, to be not only um, a place of just hope and where they can watch and join us um, on Sundays, but a place of training, uh, a place of encouragement to them and to their leaders in these interim critical seasons. I talked to a friend of mine just a couple of weeks ago um, who's part of a church of over a hundred years uh, of ministry and faithfulness there where they are. And um, their congregation has dwindled down to just a handful um, of folks. And we can be a help and a hope. You know, that area, that part um, of our state, um, you can go look this up. You don't have to just trust me in this, but you know, the, the LA Times, uh, the New York Times, Washington Post, um, all of those would say that that area of our country, southeastern Ohio, western West Virginia, eastern Kentucky, um, is called by all of those papers and resources, um, ground zero for the opioid crisis in America. And um, so that's um, terrible. And for me, I would just say that's personal. Um, friends that I grew up with, family members, uh, extended family members, have been impacted by the crisis and that is home. That is, that is the foundation in some ways, ground zero of this crisis that we're experiencing. And we can be part of um, helping with gospel uh, hope and help via local churches, strengthening them to be lighthouses um, in their community. So what I'm prayerfully asking um, you to do uh, is to consider filling out a commitment card to uh, let us know um, over the next year, 2023, uh, what your planned giving financially is to our church. It'll help us to budget. It'll help us know what are ways that we can um, extend um, our gospel reach and hopefully be kingdom influence in places locally and, uh, and globally. Um, I'll give you a slide right now just to show you um, ways that you can go access the online uh, commitment card to go and to fill that out. Angie and I, uh, we've already filled uh, our commitment card out. And in particular, for those of you um, who are partners uh, with us, regular attenders and members um, of our church who are not currently giving. We've got some folks at our church who, you know, they've been around for the last five, six years, and they've taken the opportunities to give financially when, uh, for example, at our Lewis Center campus, when we bought the land that we currently uh, own. And not just that, but a couple of years ago, whenever we built the facility um, that, uh, that now sits um, on that property um, in Lewis Center. And so for a lot of us, we are experiencing the blessings, you know, if you're new, of other people who have sacrificed for our vision. And as you come, our prayer is that you will join us in that as we multiply, raise up leaders, and then send them out. So this generosity of discipleship would grow in us and in our hearts, not because we are enough, but because God, but because God is enough because God was generous to us in the person of Christ. 
to leave heaven and come to earth, to die on a cross, to pay for our sins. And so it's not a burden, rather it becomes a joy for you and I, as we are able to participate in the kingdom of God being, just like the, the kingdom was extended to us, just like there were people who sacrificed for us, we have the privilege of doing the very same thing for others who are coming uh, behind us. So I'm prayerfully asking you to consider taking that, uh, that step of letting us know, hey, this is, this is my, you know, we plan for so many things, right, in our lives. We've got a plan for vacations. Uh, we've got a plan for our next automobile. We've got a plan for this and this and this. Why wouldn't we plan for generosity? You say, well, Dean, how do I, how do we even know how to do that? Uh, the Bible gives us a guideline. Uh, Malachi chapter three, uh, verse 10 says this. God says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven to pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room um, to store it. This is one of the few areas in the scripture where God says, put me to the test. See if you don't begin living in generosity that I don't pour blessing into your life. God wants us to live an abundant, full life. And part of that is watching and seeing him meet our needs. So how do we do that? He says in that verse, bring all the tithe. Tithe is just a word that means um, 10%. It's really a, it's really a financial um, term. And so what God says to us, I think people across times, across centuries, across cultures, is that as we give back to him 10% of the resources that he gives to us, he proves that he can do more with our lives on 90% of our income than we can do with our lives on 100% of our income, that we will experience the blessed life. And you say, well, Dean, I, I mean, this is foreign to me. This is brand new uh, to me. And if I go from not giving to giving 10%, I mean, there's this bill that I can't pay. There's this maybe debt that I have or, or what I would encourage you prayerfully in your relationship with God, start somewhere. Start at 2%, 3%, start somewhere, but give to God first. Um, I'll say for Angie and I, it's become a principle um, in our lives that when we um, receive, when we are uh, blessed uh, to be paid twice a month, the first uh, check that comes out of our bank, we have it scheduled, um, it comes directly out of our bank. And that's the first thing that we do because God says, when you put me first, you will find that I'm enough. Here's how Jesus ends the parable of the gentleman with the barns. And I'm, I'm, I'll just warn you ahead of time, uh, it's, it's a little tough. Um, this is one of those times where Jesus kind of lays down, he lays down reality for us as a reminder in verse 20. But God said to him, to this man who said, man, I'm, I'll build these barns, I've got ample, I've got enough laid up for my soul. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself 
and is not rich toward God. Jesus comes back to what he was previously teaching in context. And he says, you know, you think that you have years and you have all this time and opportunity, but he says, what you don't realize is that you're gonna, your soul will be required of you in the context of the story narrative tonight. Um, I had an unusual experience comparatively um, that I just realized recently, uh, probably a year or so, a year and a half ago, some extended family members that lived in another state that knew somebody who attended our church, they asked me to visit someone who had moved into uh, an assisted living facility, health changes and things like that. And so whenever I stepped in to visit this person um, with whom I'd, I hadn't met um, before, what I quickly realized is that he was very industrious and that he had accumulated a lot of, in a lot of ways, he had the Midas touch. Everything that he, that he touched, it kind of turned, it kind of turned to gold. But what I also realized is that while he was very good at business, he was very bad at relationships. And so here he was in an assisted living facility. He really didn't want to talk about um, God or eternity, um, but what he did want to talk about was his resources. But here he sits, um, very wealthy, very alone, and dying very, very slowly. Now, I contrast that with the experience I've had over the past couple of weeks, extended family members of one of the, uh, one of the families at one of our campuses. They had a tragedy in their family. A young man, 20 years old, passed away suddenly. And I was blessed that the family included me in that funeral, uh, that funeral service. And just the contrast of those two realities, all of us, right? All of us are dying. We're dying suddenly or we're dying slowly. But Jesus brings this reality for us from the parable to bear on how we think about our things. Do we possess our possessions? Do our possessions possess us? Do we look at God like he's enough? And we know, I mean, think about how valuable you are to him. He sent his one and only son to die for you. The New Testament says, if God has done all that, would he not freely give you all things? That God has a full jar kind of life planned for us. When I was at the funeral of that young man, the family is going through um, grief and shock. And, you know, one of the moments as a pastor that you're privileged um, to really serve people is in these, these moments in the funeral home, especially when the funeral is over and really everyone kind of clears out. And it's kind of that last moment between family members um, and the deceased uh, the shell that is left there, that is left behind. I've, I've been privileged to be in the room and get to see um, the widow of a husband of 60 plus years and the moments to watch her bend over and kiss the shell of her husband uh, that she has spent so many years. I, I believe those are moments where the veil between earth and heaven is 
It is very, very, uh, very thin, very sacred moments. But a couple of weeks ago when I was there, um, it was just the funeral director, mom and dad, and me left in the funeral home. And the funeral director opened up the casket, invited the parents to go up. They were a little bit hesitant, like most parents are, because you realize the finality of the moment. So I just tried to encourage them and say, you know, this is a really, this is a really, really tough moment. Um, at the same time, he's not here. He's gone. This is, just, this is just his shell. But what makes it difficult is that that's the shell that you kissed, right? That's the, the body that you hugged. And I said, it, it's difficult. After... After a couple of, uh, maybe 30 seconds or so, they got up and went up to the casket. And um, being there for a couple of minutes, there was a blanket that someone had given them that was draped over the bottom half uh, of the casket. And um, the funeral director did something that, um, in all of my years of doing, being part of funerals, I'd never seen anyone do. He, uh, he looked at the parents and he said, would you like to put the blanket um, inside of the casket and the parents said yes and then all of a sudden he looked at him and he said uh, would you like to tuck him in and both the parents they said immediately just there yes and so he opened up the casket in full and I got to watch mom and dad tuck their son in like he was a baby boy it was it was beautiful to watch sacred uh, moments that occur and a reminder to me, and I hope a reminder to you that life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. That no matter how much you accumulate in that moment, that funeral home moment right there, the emblem on your car, the number of square feet in your home, the number of titles that precede or follow your name, none of that means anything. The only thing that matters in that moment is where you are in relation to Jesus. And quite frankly, the only thing that will matter a hundred years from now or a thousand years from now or 10,000 years from now is Jesus. So I would encourage you this morning that as much as you can to desire to um, strategize, to pray, to principle yourself towards living a blessed, generous, full, jar, kind of life for all that God has for you and your future generations. Let's pray together. Father, we just want to say today, this morning, you are enough. And Lord, so many times we allow um, cultural things, heart level things to creep in and to cloud that. 
But God, you are enough for us. You're our greatest need. You're our greatest satisfaction. You are the fulfillment of all of our hopes and dreams. And you prove that to us on the cross. Help us, God, to know and to see that you are our security. God, that if we were that valuable to you, will you not meet all of our needs? God, especially during this season, this month, as we think about Thanksgiving, God, will you let it well up in us that we don't take for granted all of the ways that you provide, all of the ways that you are Jehovah Jireh in our lives already. And then God, that we will look with hope and gratitude towards our future and the ways God that you will provide for all of our needs as well. It's in your name that we pray, amen.